The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. It can be found on page 890 of the Black Bibles. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lie a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as it was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Mark. And thank you, Paul, for playing that beautiful meditation for us during our offertory and for turning our hearts and minds toward the Lord. Uh, Welcome, my name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It's really just so great to have each one of you here with us. If you're new here at Christ the King, a particular welcome to you. I want you to know that this is a place for people who do not have it all together, uh, for people who need a savior, but we also believe at this church that we have a great savior for our need who's revealed to us in his word. So let's pray and ask him to help us now as we come to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time that you've given us uh, to as your church family um, that you have given to us to gather around your word and uh, to consider what you would have to teach us now. We pray that you would speak to us through your scriptures and we pray that your spirit would open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a lot of you may have been hearing different stories about Queen Elizabeth since uh, she recently died. One of my favorite stories I heard about her recently was told by her former head of security, a man named Richard Gaffin, and I'm sorry, Richard Griffin. And uh, Richard said that uh, on one occasion he was at Balmoral Castle, which is in the Scottish Highlands. It's a castle that's belonged to the royal family for centuries. It was one of Queen Elizabeth's favorite places to go on holiday. And one of her favorite activities to do while she was there was to go on walks 
around the castle grounds, but then also into the countryside. And actually some of the paths that she would hike actually intersected with public park kind of area where people might be walking. And uh, Richard Griffin tells a story about one time they were on a path like that when they came across an American who was traveling all by himself. And this American came up to them and began talking to them, and it was very clear that the American had no idea who he was talking to. He's talking about this great walking trip that he's going on and all the different sites that he's seen, and he kind of finally stops talking about himself, which us Americans like to do, and he says, well, what about you? Where, where do you live? Where are you from? And the queen just says, well, I'm from London. And he said, oh, well, what brings you here? And she's like, well, my family has a holiday home that we've been coming to for a while. And he's like, oh, really? How long have you been coming to this place? And she says, well, uh, our home is just over those hills, and we've been coming here. I've been coming since I was a little girl about 80 years ago. And he starts to think about it for a second. He's like, so have you ever seen the queen then? Have you ever met? Have you ever met the queen? And... The queen quickly replies, well, I haven't met her, but Dick here meets her regularly. <laughs> and the American's attention turns to you know, Richard Griffin. He says, well, tell me, what, what is she like? And Richard Griffin had been, he'd been her security detail long enough and had become friends with her long enough to say this, but he said, well, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she's got a lovely sense of humor. And they just began talking about the queen. He's asking her all these questions, asking him all these questions. And he finally says, hey, this, is, this has been so great. I would love to remember this. Do you mind if I took a picture with you? And so he throws his arm around Richard Griffin and then hands his phone to the <laughs> queen and says, would you take a picture of us? And she snaps a picture and then kindly Richard Griffin's like, hey, why don't I take a picture with you, uh, with the two of you as well? And so he takes a picture of <laughs> this man unknowingly standing next to the Queen of England. And they send him on his way and the Queen just looks over at Mr. Griffin afterwards and says, I would love to be a fly on the wall when he shows his pictures of his holiday to his American friends. I hope one of them knows who I am. <laughs> And I just thought that that story so perfectly illustrates what is happening in this moment in the book of John. Because we find ourselves at this pool of water in Jerusalem, a pool that would gather many people, desperate people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And there is this man and someone is gonna walk up to him and he is gonna look right past, right past Jesus. This man who, verse 35, tells us has been invalid for 38 years, which it, it, is, it is easy to breeze past that number and not think about what that must have actually been like. I'm actually 38 years old, so this hit me a little different this year reading this story. Uh, for, to be invalid for 38 years, how might that impact every aspect of his life? What he's able to do socially, who might be interested in him romantically, what that would be like for his job prospects. Even his access to the temple would have been different because of this state he was in. And up walks Jesus 
and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? If you were this man's friend, you would be tempted to be frustrated with this rabbi who just walked up to your friend who has had this ailment for almost four decades and then to just look at him and say, do you want to be healed? But Jesus is not being... He's not being unkind to this man in this story. He's actually going to compassionately, as Jesus often does throughout the Gospels, he's going to compassionately draw out this man so that we can see his heart and so that this man can be further known. So he asks him this simple yes or no question, do you want to be healed? And the man does not answer yes or no. Instead, he looks past Jesus And look how he responds in verse six. I'm sorry, verse um, seven. Sir, I have no one to put me in to the water. He looks right past Jesus and begins talking about what he doesn't have. And that's just like us. To think about what we have or do not have and what we think that we need. He looks right past Jesus to the pool that he thinks will somehow heal him. He looks right past Jesus and says, I have to get that. Why is he doing this? Well, verse seven tells us that he believes that when the water is stirred up, while another is going, while another another steps down before him, someone's getting into the water before him. And, And, Y'all, I took a whole like seminary class on biblical text criticism. So let me just geek out for like a little bit, okay? Because there's something interesting going on here. If you'll notice, verse four isn't in your Bible, in the Black Bible. It goes from verse three to verse five. And then there's a footnote. There's a footnote in between, at the beginning of verse five, that tells you that verse four appears in later manuscripts. So again, just to... Tell you how, this is how we got the Bible, okay? So the Apostle John, we believe, wrote the Gospel of John. And then that, that Gospel was seen by scribes and copied. And then some scribes saw the copies of those scribes' copies and they made copies. And then more copies were made and copy after copy after copy was made through the centuries and spread throughout the ancient Near East. What we can do is we can actually look back at all of these manuscripts and we can see really even just decades after the original book of John was written, we, can, we, we, have, we have these manuscripts. But some of the later manuscripts written a few hundred years later, those copies of the copies of the copies, some of those later manuscripts include verse 4. And so because of that, we don't treat verse 4 as if it's the original autograph of the Apostle John, or or even that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, it is an interesting editorial note that was probably added by a scribe at some point who knew the Jewish folklore of this pool called Bethesda, who wanted people to know this is is what was going on. This is why this man says this in verse 7, while he's so concerned about getting into the pool first. And so here's the footnote. Here's this editorial comment that some scribe gave to us at some point. And you see it in verse 4. 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So there, there is this Jewish folklore that's, that has um, grown up around this pool that people believe that if you, are, if you can be the first person to get into this pool whenever it starts to bubble, likely from some sort of artesian water well or hot, kind of like a hot spring sort of situation, whoever gets into this water first, they'll be healed. And so I want you to imagine what this scene must have looked like. Imagine the anxiety of the people around the pool waiting for it to be stirred up. Imagine the desperation of all the people gathered and how competitive it would have been to be the first to to get in. And, And it shouldn't be that hard for us to imagine a space like this because our world today has pools just like this. Pools that bring diverse crowds of people from all walks of life with all different kinds of needs but who are all desperate and who are thrown into situations that are competitive where resources feel scarce. It's not hard to imagine a scene like that. We're about to live one, Black Friday. It's coming. Some of y'all, I will be asleep, hopefully. Some of y'all will be out there though. I'll be praying for you when I wake up. Places of desperation and competition. The travel team tryout where resources feel scarce, kids. You know what that's like. The standardized testing room, the emergency room. People from all kinds of walks of life, but all desperate and in need and wanting to be seen next. That's this man's situation. What would the rush be like to get into that pool when it began to be stirred? when there were some bubbles coming to the surface, what would it be like? You can imagine people would be fixated on the pool, fixated on the water. And that's what this man is when Jesus walks up to him. He looks right past Jesus at that pool because that's the place where his hope is. So what do you find yourself fixated on? What feels competitive like this pool? Maybe it's your parenting. And so because of that, because because that feels like the thing that if I can just get that right, then my life will work and I will be okay. You listen then to tons of parenting podcasts or you read tons of parenting books. And y'all, that's not wrong. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not here to throw stones at people who listen to parenting podcasts, okay? But how often do we look past the one who we really need in our parenting? And we know that we're looking past them because we don't pray. We're prayerless in our parenting so often, looking past the one who actually is, a, we believe, is at work in our lives, in our children's lives. We look past him and we look to techniques and resources. What about the job interview pool? The career pool? 
I remember when I was a campus pastor hearing a student tell me that his roommate, they had both been interviewing for the same job, when the hiring manager told his roommate to let his buddy know that he got a second interview, his roommate didn't tell him. He kept that a secret. Why? Competition. Scarce resources. You've got to get it. If you can get it, you'll be okay. What about the dating pool? If I can just meet the right person, then my life would work. And we look right past Jesus, the one we most need, thinking that there's somebody out there, some person who will make my life finally whole. And so we look past Jesus to social pools, interview pools, accomplishment pools, actually sometimes even literal pools, like swimming pools. Listen to this interview with Michael Phelps. This is in 2014, after he has become the most decorated Olympian at the 2012 London Olympics. This is from an ESPN article. It says, by 2014, he was approaching 30, lost with no identity beyond that of a champion swimmer. He self-medicated and wondered whether his life was a life worth living. I didn't give a rip, Phelps says. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I thought the world would just be better off without me. I figured that was the best thing to do, just in my life. Eventually, Phelps realized that all the Olympic medals in the world couldn't ease his pain and instead made life more complicated. First, I just want to be clear. If that's you today, don't be alone in that. Reach out to someone. Reach out to one of our pastors. Reach out to a friend here. Don't be alone in that. But I also want you to hear what the most decorated Olympian of all time is telling us about the pool that he was fixated on and where it left him. Do you find yourself unsatisfied or insecure? I want you to see that no other pool will fix you. We need Jesus. And the way that Jesus draws this man's attention from the pool It's just straight up grace. This man is looking past Jesus and Jesus interrupts his life with grace. This man did not have incredible faith and because his faith was so awesome, Jesus decided to heal him. That's not how that worked. This man was looking past Jesus and yet Jesus still says, rise. Pick up that thing that you have felt imprisoned by for the last 38 years of your life. Just pick it up and walk. And you've got you've to imagine this man, he begins to stand and these feeble, skinny, atrophied legs hold his weight when he stands. And then he, it, he rolls up his bed, which probably would have looked a little bit like a yoga mat, He rolls it up and puts it under his arm and he begins to walk. And I got to imagine after 38 years, he's probably got a pep in his step. And just kind of imagine him walking through Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, he's he's got his little mat and his life has just been completely changed. But then we see this curious response. Second point, curious response. And the response is from 
the folks who observe this man carrying his mat. John calls them the Jews, which is his shorthand, not for all Jews in Jerusalem at the time. It's his shorthand he uses all throughout the book of John to describe the the teachers and the religious leaders of the Jews during that day. And so there's these religiously devout people, all the preachers of that day, right? All the pastors of that day, those kind of people. They go and they see this man that they've surely, some of them would have recognized. Wasn't that big of a town. And he was someone who had been an invalid for 38 years in their city. And they see this man walking. And their response, we see in verse 10, is to immediately begin talking about the law. It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And his response is, well, the man who healed me told me to do it. So I did it. And their response to that is so strange. Because if you saw a guy that you knew for 38 years who had been invalid his entire life, walking down the street carrying his bed, and he said, somebody healed me, you would think that you would ask the question, who healed you? Who is that? Some, somebody actually just said, get up, and you got up? Tell me who that is. Who, who, that, who is the person who healed you? But their question is not, who healed you? It's, who told you to pick up your mat? You see the difference in that question? It's a curious response. They are looking right past Jesus And they're looking at another pool. And it's the pool of religious law abiding. They're looking right past Jesus. And they're looking at this law of keeping the Sabbath. And do you know where it says in the Bible where you you shouldn't carry anything on the Sabbath? Nowhere. It ain't in it. That's not in the Bible. What the religious leaders of that day had done is they, had, they made a list of 39 extra rules about the Sabbath. We call it fencing the law. So we're not, just so no one breaks the law, we're gonna build a big fence around this law to make sure no one ever, ever disobeys it. So we're going to go beyond what the law of God says because our hope really Subtext, because our hope is in keeping that law perfectly. That's our hope. And 39th on that list of 39 laws about the Sabbath, the last one, the 39th law was you are not to carry anything from one place to another on the Sabbath. He's breaking the last one and they see him and that's what they hone in on. That he's carrying his mat They have added to God's law about resting on the Sabbath. And that's what they are upset about. Looking right past Jesus to the pool of law abiding, which they think that is what will make them right. And friends, we're sitting in a church right now. So that means a lot of us are probably like these guys. Like this is, if you're wondering where am I in the story, it's very likely this is, this is where we step in, in the story. We're like these guys. Where, where we add things 
that we think will really make God happy with us. If we just do this or that, then God will be pleased with us. Maybe you feel this sometimes when you do listen to like a Christian podcast or that parent, that Christian parenting podcast, or you, there's maybe someone on social media that you've started to watch or someone that you read. And when you read them, you kind of feel, or you listen to them, you close your book or you close your phone and you just feel, you feel bad. You feel terrible. You're just like, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. That person's doing all this amazing stuff. And they tell me all these things I need to be doing and I'm not doing it. I'm struggling. I am not doing well. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I need to become more like them. And when we do that, we tip our hands. That what we think our hope is, is in us becoming a better religious person. I've heard the same thing over the years about people talking about their quiet time. Well, listen, please don't let the takeaway of this sermon be that John doesn't want you to read your Bibles, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But quiet, and if you don't know what a quiet time is, it's this thing that people started doing like fairly recently in church history where they get their Bible by themselves and they read and they pray and then they feel really good about themselves the rest of the day. No, that's not, but that, that, like, that's kind of what we do with it, let's be honest. But we've, let's think historically for a second, church history, for like three quarters of history since Jesus came, most people couldn't read. Which means that most people that you meet in heaven or a lot of people that you read in heaven didn't do their quiet time. They couldn't. Or even if they could read, they didn't own a Bible because the printing press wasn't invented. And if they did, they were really, you know, like most people just didn't have that resource. That has never been what makes us righteous in God's sight. Now, why do we read our Bibles? We don't, we don't read our Bibles in order to show God how seriously we're taking him. We read our Bibles because we need to be reminded of the grace of God. We need to be reminded that we have a father who loves us. That's why, that's why we read our Bibles every day if we can not to puff up our chest and to show the world how committed we are to our faith, but actually to remember how committed God is to saving sinners like us. That's why we read our Bibles. So let's not look past Jesus to some other pool, whether it's our work or our kids or even our own church going and religion. But that's what we see happening with these with these men here. But think about, think about this lame man who's been healed, this man healed at Bethesda. What did he do? Nothing. He is simply lying before Jesus, helpless, and he's a picture of every single one of us. It's what the author of the song, Rock of Ages, tells us, that nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. That's all we have. All we have is Jesus. Why does God want you to come to him with nothing, with just you? What if it's that's all he really wants is just you? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? He doesn't need you plus your law abiding or you plus your good. He wants just you. And the reason, the reason that we can 
take him at his word for this is because it's what he tells us. Look at verse 17. He's telling us that our our right living doesn't fix things, but instead his living, his work. Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. It's the Sabbath when he's telling them this, by the way. I am am working right now. The reason, by the way, that we can rest on the Sabbath is because we believe that God's at work. He is always at work for us. He is working. Our hope is not in us being serious about our faith, but in Jesus being serious about our salvation. That's what our hope is, that he's at work for our salvation. But you need to know that when Jesus said this, and we we see this in the last verse, verse 18, When Jesus said this, when he called God his father and said that he and his father were at work, when he did this, the people who would eventually kill Jesus started having really serious conversations about making that happen. That's when they got serious about needing to kill him. In other words, Jesus is so committed to making this man's body work again. Jesus is so committed to giving this man a taste of redemption. He's so committed to doing that that he's willing He's willing to work so much that he would go to the cross. Have you ever wondered how it is that Jesus, that Jesus could be joyful in the midst of suffering? How is it that the one who came eating and drinking with sinners, who came and brought 900 bottles of wine to a party. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? How could it be that that guy also was the man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, who wept at the grave of his friend and who multiple times predicted his own crucifixion? How could he be both of those things? Both a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief and one who brought joy and rested in the joy of the Lord. I think it's because he knows how the story ends. He knows that the story doesn't end in defeat. He knows that he's going to win. That the story doesn't end in death, but with resurrection. Jesus knows that he is going to defeat death and in doing so, he defeats anything that would make his people sick or cripple or empty. Uh, I said I was a campus pastor. I served at the University of Texas for seven years. And when I got there, I was really excited because I grew up a Vanderbilt fan and went to Vanderbilt for undergrad. And I don't know if you know much about college football, but Vanderbilt doesn't have a very storied legacy. Okay, we'll just put it that way. We're kind of losers. So I got excited. I started at the University of Texas like 10 years ago and everyone was telling me Texas was back. So that sounded good to me. I think we still are trying to be back, but... I, uh, I was really excited and would go to football games with, with students and it was interesting over the years, I started to notice that they began to speak more and more like Vanderbilt fans. <laughs> Texas would be playing like UTEP, no offense to any UTEP fans in the, in the room this morning, but like we'd be playing, I remember it was a UTEP game, UTEP scored a, an early touchdown and all the students were like, oh, here we go, this is it, we're gonna blow it, we're just gonna show up today, this is not gonna be good. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Like, you're Texas, it's okay. But there was so much anxiety during the game. There was a lot of hand-wringing and really just despair. But I, I would sit with those same, that, that same student from the UTEP game and ask him, hey, show me, your favorite, show me your favorite YouTube video on Texas football. 
pulls up 2006 Rose Bowl. If you don't know, it's, it's when it's the last national championship that Texas won. He pulls up the video and he scrolls to the last six minutes of the game. And USC scores a touchdown. Texas is losing by 12 points. But he's just like, watch this. And he didn't like watching USC scoring the touchdown. But the reason he can watch the video is because he knows how the story ends. He can, he can watch all the sadness, all the despair, and know that the story doesn't end with that. And for anyone who is in Christ, and listen, I know, I know that there are stories in this room right now that feel hopeless. There are stories in this room right now that feel so heavy and full of despair or sadness or grief. And I'm not telling you to be flippant about that. But what I am telling you is that Jesus wins. There's a hope in the resurrection that all things will be made new again because of the work of Jesus, because Jesus is at work. So don't look past him at all the pools that we set our attention on that we think are somehow going to make our lives better. We only need Jesus. He is all that we need. He is more than enough. And so church, family, let's look to him. Let's look to him. And if you have not yet believed in Christ, this is an invitation to you today to stop looking at all the things that are leaving you empty, all the things that are are leaving you sitting by the pool feeling insecure and wondering if you're ever gonna get enough, to finally turn from that and turn to the one who welcomes needy people and who welcomes them with eternal, lasting hope. That's what Jesus does with this man. And that's what he's done for any who would come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would help us, um, help us to look to you, to not look past you, but uh, to see our need for you and your great provision for all that we need in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray to you now. Amen.